Well, Angela, thank you so much for being here today with us on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Stephen. I'm really excited about this conversation. Yeah, and I, you know, I feel I feel that your work is is so unique because you've been able to combine both the academic world and the business world in a way that not many have before. And just in my experience, a lot of times when a professor writes a book, sometimes it it uh, maybe can sound a bit out of touch or maybe too theoretical to understand. But the way that you've been able to weave the research, the data, uh, the stories, and narrative is is very powerful. It, it the, the way that it speaks is just is just amazing. And I think, um, and I wanted to ask you this. I, I think it might partly be because of your background. Um, you have a unique background where you started off in management consulting at McKinsey, if 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 I remember right. And then you decided at age 27 to leave the consulting world and to start teaching, which I think for most consultants is not a real the standard career path most people do. So I'm, I'm really curious what, what drew you to teaching? What, what made you make that decision? When I left McKinsey to teach, it was in a way... Um, uh, the surprise was that I had even been in consulting in the first place because the chapter that came before McKinsey was that I had been tutoring and working with kids really like, I don't know. I mean, really as far back as I can remember, you know, uh, as a high school student, as a college student, and the first two years out of college, I started a, an enrichment program, um, like a tuition-free summer school for kids in the, you know, community near my college. And so, in a way, it was McKinsey that was the digression, the kind of like, what? Like, what non sequitur is this in the story of your life? And going into the classroom to become a math teacher, first in middle school and then in high school, that was kind of like the main plot. I mean, that made a lot more sense if you were going to make a screenplay out of it. Um, so I, I would say that this toggling, though, between you know being a classroom educator, then being a consultant, then, you know, sort of going back and forth between um, these worlds because, you know, I was kids and then like business. I, I gave me one very distinct impression, which is that, you know, whether you're a teacher or you're a CEO, you know, it's the same job, right? Like you're trying to help people become better um, and, and you're trying to help them fulfill their wishes and their dreams. And so I have found it even more the case that like, Everyone really has the same job when, when I became a mother, right? It's like all of us really are trying to become the best people that we are. And also so, so much of the time that includes helping the people that we care about, whether they're working for us, whether they're our students or our, whether they're our children, like do the same. That's a, that's a great answer. I was, I was just curious kind of why that decision was made and, and obviously we're grateful for it. So the other question I had was, did you always have uh, an aspiration to write a book in your life? And then, and then like, as you started studying, you thought, okay, this is going to be the topic I want. Or, or was it more that once you started researching and studying, then you're like, 
either felt compelled or other people were saying, you need to write a book about this. I'm, I'm just curious, why'd you write it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you like the secret backstory of, of writing this book. And, and by the way, just thank you. Your, 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 your words are, you know, very kind. And, um, uh, I, I will say that the story begins with my husband because my husband, Jason came home one day and he said, and this is years ago, this is certainly before I wrote the book. He said, you know, you should write, you should write something. You should write a book on grit. And I thought to myself, like, first of all, books are so long. Like, I can't, I could not picture mentally, like, actually writing one. It just seemed to me like, like, you may as well have said, like, hey, you should climb to the top of Mount Everest in flip flops, right? Like, I was just like, that's absurd. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't know who writes all these books, but I couldn't do it. I, I, I can't. The other thing is, um, I, I felt like I was, um, you know, maybe. Um, like too junior to like, you know, write a book with authority. So for all these reasons, I said, no, 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 no. Then, then a few days later he came home and he said, you know, if you don't write this book, somebody else is going to write this book and they're going to call it grit. And you're going to be really annoyed because it's not going to say the things that you want it to say. And literally it was that argument. I was like, okay, fine, I'll write a book. So I was very reluctant. I dragged my feet. Um, the whole time I was writing, it took a year end to end. Um, I, I cried most, maybe half the days. I don't know if it was most days, but like wow. one day out of two, like tears, like um, I had temper tantrums. I like, you know, would remind my husband that it was really his idea and like he had ruined my life. Um, I said to him, like, probably I won't even live as long because it's been so stressful. <laughs> like I'll probably live five years less than I would have. But now that I can look back, I will say that, um, you know, your grandfather's book, which I've read and um, so many other books that I think we probably have both read. If we ask ourselves, like, did we learn something? Um, and, and will that thing that we learn really stay with us, like in some meaningful way? Honestly, um, I have to say yes to that. And, you know, in answer to that question, also, like, I really don't know of another like technology, if you will, than books that to, that to like deliver human insight from one person to another, as well as books do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that really goes along with why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place. And specifically, the reason I call that paradigm shifting books is because I feel like paradigms, and this is something my grandpa just always harped on, was he would always talk about the power of paradigms. And so for me, this book on grit was a huge paradigm shift for me. I mean, I, I grew up playing American football, right? So I, I heard I heard the term grit a lot. Um, either a coach was pointing out a player and saying, you know, that that guy's got grit. Or the coach was berating me or my teammates For saying, you know grit. what, you, yeah, <laughs> you need more grit. So I always thought, you know, I just thought of grit as, you know, you know, just toughness and uh, never, never quitting um, was just kind of how I grew up with it. But but how do you how do you go about defining grit in, in the book? I define grit in a way that might actually be a little different than the way the word was used, like in the movies and maybe on the sports fields. So um, I define grit as the combination of perseverance and passion for long-term goals. So, so what grit sounds like is just perseverance for long-term goals, like stick with it, you know, even on a bad day, like work hard, work on your weaknesses, um, tough it out. I, I think those are elements of perseverance that 
are part of grit. But this other half of passion is really about loving what you do for a very long time. Like, let's just take, um, I'll just use myself as an example. Um, I go to bed at night and I, you know, the, 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 like when I go to bed, I'm kind of like thinking about, you know, psychology. Right. And, and then in the middle of the night, if I have to get up and get a drink of water or go to the bathroom, like, like in my dreams, I'm actually thinking about psychology. And I know that because in that moment of awareness, like just when you, you're like, you realize that you're dreaming about your work. And then when I wake up in the morning and I almost want to like run downstairs, like to get started, um, it's because I really love what I do. And I think when people think of grit, they might think of like gritting your teeth, determination, doing things that you don't like. Um, that sometimes is necessary, but even if you're doing things you don't like, it's because the project is something that you love. So, so if we could, you know, um, embrace that, I think, you know, we might say different things to our kids um, and we might lead a different way. And, and the reason I, I care about both of these things, not only the perseverance, but the passion is because in my research, when I study, you know, super achievers, they don't just have perseverance for long-term goals. They also have passion for long-term goals. And I have to say, like, I think that's at least as important. Yeah. And, and what would you say, um, in the book, you, you explain it brilliantly and obviously we, we can't talk about everything in your book today, but, um, with, with passion, I was curious, you know, someone maybe who's listening to this towards the start of their career and this idea of passion. I mean, a lot of times, you'll see in a movie or you'll hear stories where it's like, oh, and then I knew in that moment I had the epiphany. passion for this, an epiphany, right? Lightning. But but in, in your book, you talk about that that's not always the case, how that happens. In fact, for most people, that's that's probably not how it happens. I'm, I'm curious how what your research showed and, and kind of what you say in the book about that. The, the development of a passion is probably a better way to even phrase this process than the discovery of a passion. And in the movies, you know, it really does happen in usually one scene and, you know, there's music and, um, you know, before that scene, the protagonist is like struggling and wandering. And then after that scene, it's like, oh, great. Like now I know I want to be a chef. Like, and from that moment on, I knew I was going to be a ballet dancer, right? You know, that's very romantic. And maybe that does happen occasionally. But I think the vast majority of us, you know, grow into, develop, mature, evolve into our eventual passions. And again, just to use my own life story as an example, you know, I went to graduate school when I was 32 years old. I was pregnant with my second daughter. I had already had one um, daughter. So I was, you know, frankly, not in a very convenient period of life. Like, why did I not go till I was 32? Is it because I had an epiphany when I was 31? You know, not quite. It was really a gradual um, realization and a gradual development of like a kind of a deepening interest in human nature. And then when I went to graduate school, I'll tell you, like it continued to evolve and mature. And so in a way it was much more like marriage, you know, like you know, you might think like, oh, you can fall in love with somebody in five minutes. Well, you can feel very attracted to someone in five minutes, but I don't think you can develop a relationship with a person in five minutes. And if you think about passion as more of a ongoing, evolving relationship, then it makes you realize that it could take years of, you know, um, of, 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 you know, exploring and then deepening and, and trying things out, which is why young people, and by that, I mean, not only, you know, teenagers and children, but really like young adults in their 20s, for example, um, 
you know, need to have a little bit of patience, I think, and and maybe these wards will help them be less terrified um, that they don't yet have a quote unquote passion um, because it does take time. And for most people, in my experience, it takes years. Another thing I really liked in the in in your book is when you talk about kind of society's um, preoccupation with with talent, like natural born talent. You know, why we as a society, why do we like the stories of the talented individuals, the the prodigies, the the Mozarts, where we just we just love this person that just emerges and they're like, hey, man, he's so much talent. Look at the way he performs. So I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about what you found in your research as far as why do people love the talent? And then sometimes they look at the hard work and like, oh, yeah, that that person worked hard. But, you know, what I love is the story of the talent. Talent is such an interesting word. It is um, almost magical, isn't it? Right. Everybody wants to be called talented. And, you know, we have gifted and talented programs. We have talent shows and companies always talk about, you know, like winning the war for talent. And and um, as you may know, you know, the word itself goes back to biblical times. And, you know, the meaning literally was, you know, a, a measure of, you know, silver or gold. So like, you know, it, it meant value, right? But now in modern times, we use it in this kind of, you know, mystical sense to mean like, kind of like everything that you want someone to be, you know, like, like it, it comes, it rolls off our tongue in so many different circumstances that honestly, I don't know that we really specifically know what we mean, except for that it's good and that, and that we all want to be it. And it has something to do with being an achiever. Um, the person who's taught me the most about this word talent and how we use it and how we sometimes misuse it, I think, is um, uh, a guy named Danny Southwick, who, like you, played football a lot in his life. And um, he was um, pro for a um, short time, um, I think, for the Oakland Raiders. Um, and improbably, he is now my graduate student. So I have to say he's probably like the only NFL quarterback in history to ever um, enter the PhD program, at least at an Ivy League school. And what Danny Southwick his name is trying to understand is like why we love this word talent, um, what it means to us when we hear it, what it makes us feel um, and, and what's really going on in terms of achievement. And what Danny's discovered in his research is that um, this word talent has these connotations of being born, not, not made, you know, um, innate, not learned. And um, when we hear this word, it, it can demotivate us, especially if we feel like we don't have the talent to do something. Um, when Danny was a football player, he remembers distinctly one coach saying to him, you know, look, I've been doing this for 30 years. And uh, I got to tell you, you've got the talent to succeed in this league. And then almost the very next day, another coach watching him play said, look, I, I've been doing this for decades. And I got to tell you, you don't have the talent that takes. So, so, so I think that it can, it can really um, be a word that is like a dangerous word to use because it, it, it has so much of this connotation of innateness and it, it's so weighty. Um, I think what we want to say, both Danny and I, is that when you look at true human excellence, you know, uh, you know, Tom Brady, if you want to take one of Danny's heroes in football or, you know, for me, like Carol Dweck, or like you could think of like your favorite movie star. I mean, a, a great CEO or leader or community activist, you know, if you look at excellence in any human endeavor, you know, whatever it is that talent is or isn't, it's undeniable. And the scientific research is very clear that you cannot achieve those 
heights of human excellence in anything without thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of, of hard work, um, of working on weaknesses, of getting feedback, of calibrating, of like going to bed, you know, thinking about how to do it better the next day, of resting and trying again, like trying new tactic. And that to me is, you know, um, a much more complicated story. And the reason Danny and I think that there's this romance um, with talent, especially in the United States, is that when you believe that somebody has accomplished what they've accomplished because they're talented, if you believe that Tom Brady is different from you because he's talented and you're not, then you don't have to try so hard because there's no game to win. But I think the responsibility is on all of us to say, look, so much of our success in life is really about what we do and not about what we were born with. And therefore it is this long, hard row you know, road to climb or, 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 or road to, you know, to till, but like, I think, I think that's, that, that's the truth of it. Um, so, so that was a little speech on talent and, you know, I, I, I'm glad you asked it. And of course, you know, to me, it's very much why I began studying grit in the first place. Cause I had the intuition that it couldn't be just talent that made people successful in life. Yeah, no, I, I really like it. And I think the way you, the formulas that you put together, um, in the book and, and, Tell me if I'm wrong, but it's it's you, you count effort twice in the formulas, right? It's talent talent times effort equals skill, and then skill times effort equals achievement. I, I like the way that you kind of simplified that in, in those formulas <laughs> where where effort counts twice. That kind of stuck with me, you know, as as I read it. And you mentioned it um a little, but are are people are people born with grit? Are some people naturally more grittier than other people? And then is it something, can, can you grow grit or is it just, you know, you're born with what you have and that's it? Okay. So I'm going to try to do two things. One is I'm just going to say about those equations. Um, one thing that's missing from those equations, and I think I wrote it in the text, but, um, you know, sometimes people just look at the picture and they don't look at the, the words around the picture. And I'll just say that one thing that's missing is opportunity, right? And I've often mm -hmm. been asked like, wait a second, what if you try really hard and you're really talented and you're born, you know, in a society or to a position or in, in a country that like, that there isn't opportunity. And I just wanted to honor that criticism because I think that's right and legitimate. And I just yeah. wrote around the picture, like, oh, by the way, you know, this little formula leaves out opportunity. That's really important as a psychologist. I don't really study it as much, but anyway, I think that criticism of, of the of the equation and my work is, is legitimate. Legitimate. So I just wanted to say that, um, you know, there's a limitation there. And then in terms of, um, you know, who we are and how much of who we are is our genes that we inherit from our mother and our father, our biological mother and father, our DNA, how much of it is nature? How much of it is nurture? You know, our early experiences, who we had for our fifth grade, you know, teacher, like who our best friend was, you know, the summer camp we went to, like who our first boss was, you know, how much is like our character developed by nature versus nurture? And the, the, the simple answer, although like any simple answer, you know, there's a more complex answer, which is a little more precise, but I'll just start with simple, is that there's nothing about you, Stephen, or me, or anybody that we know, that's not both. It's not the right question to ask, is it nature or nurture? 
Because the answer is that it's nature and nurture, right? And then the question is like, well, how much? Like, is it 60-40? Is it 80-20? Is it like, you know, 10-90? Like, what's the ratio? And I would have to give you a much longer answer that would require a little bit um, too much time. But I would say that roughly half of the variation in any characteristic that you could think of, you know, grit, extroversion, um, you know, whether you like to eat broccoli or not. Um, these are uh, things that people vary on. And about half of that variation can be explained by nature, by your by your genes. Um, and then about half of it by your nurture, by your experiences, by your environment. And there's a lot more to say there, but I'll just say that, you know, that tells me as a mother that I could wake up every morning and think like, why are Amanda and Lucy like doing that? Well, you know, there's her dad's genes right there. Like, or I could think like, if, if, if what we do in life is always in part determined by experience and environment, then my job as a mother is to create an environment that um, helps my, you know, two daughters cultivate character in the ways that I know it can. So, so the genes are important to acknowledge, but I will just say, I hope they don't end up being a distraction from the part of the, you know, story that we can control. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's so insightful. And I, I remember when I, when I read the book for the first time, um, I really liked when you talked about the idea of, well, you can't teach height, right? You can't teach height. But in reality, it's, it, it kind of threw me for a loop a little because you look at the average height of people, you know, 100, 200 years ago. And I can't remember. I think it was Br British, British troops or, or yeah. something where you show that the height difference over time and that w what contributed to that was better eating habits and better medicine. And, and there was a number of things that actually did have an impact on, on that. So that was kind of like, for me, I was like, wow, because that's something you hear at least in sports, right? It's always right. like, oh, we can't teach height. You can't teach speed, you know, things like that. But um, that was... That was pretty, pretty unique when I read Now, look, that. if you got an athlete and they're 22, you know, like, you know, you, you, you aren't going to make them taller, right? Because they're done right. growing, right? So I think that, you know, when coaches say, you know, I can't teach height, it's like, well, the kid's done growing and we're, sure, I think that's true. By the way, Steph Curry isn't the tallest guy in the world either. And he has like one of the, you know, best uh, shooting records in history, if not the best by some metric. So, so I think there's this kind of like, you know, what you can't teach and what you can, I mean, um, on my bedside, you know, we're both lovers of books. And, you know, I think both of us, I think, have a real respect for books that help people, you know, develop themselves personally. Well, one of the oldest of these is um, the writings of, uh, well, it's actually the teachings of Epictetus, you know, the ancient Roman Stoic philosopher. And um, it's actually, I think, one of his protégés who like wrote down all the things that Epictetus wisely said. And, you know, the very opening of this, um, like volume that I'm, I'm reading is like, you know, there are things in life that you can change and there are things in life that you can't. Um, and I think that that sentence says that like, okay, these things are true. Some things you can't direct, like a coach cannot change a 22 year old's height. Um, but a coach can change a lot of other things. And I think the question is, are we going to do what Epictetus told us to do, which is that it's very useful in life to acknowledge what you cannot change and then to focus your energy on what you can. And so, you know, this nature nurture thing to me is sometimes, you know, a way for people to, um, you know, make excuses to themselves about the things that like they 
they, they can't change. Like you can't change your genes, you know, your risk for heart disease, you know, your family has a history of, you know, cancer, or but guess what? You can change what you're going to eat for breakfast the next morning. Right? right. And, and you can change so much else. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, I love, I love the way that you organize the book where you first kind of give a new paradigm for what grid, grid is, explain about it. And then you start with the inside out approach, which is a very similar approach my, my grandpa always took with his stuff. And then, you, and then you do the outside in approach. But when you, when you talk about developing grit from the inside out, you mentioned that there's kind of four key psychological characteristics that, that paragons of grit have. Uh, interest, practice, purpose, and hope. So what I what I am hoping is maybe maybe we could go a minute or two on each one and just kind of get the high level. So on so on interest, um, what stood out to me, and then and then I'd love to hear you say it yourself. But th- this idea of being interest, you're being triggered by interactions with the outside world, and that interest leads to passion. I know you mentioned a little bit of this before, but but this idea of of interest. Interest is an emotion. Um, and we know what it feels like to be interested. Like I'm interested in what you're saying. So like, I'm like, what's he going to say next? And like, uh, you know, you have my attention and you have it voluntarily and you have it spontaneously. And that's when we're interested, what it feels like. You feel energized, you feel engaged, and you don't feel like it's um, anything you have to work on. Boredom, by the way, is the opposite, right? It's like when we're bored, it's like you have to like force yourself to look up. You have to like, you know, your head starts nodding, your mind starts wa- wandering. So when I say that interest is the, you know, the root of, of passion, um, what I mean is that, you know, the very beginnings of like eventually loving something, I, I think does start with like, gosh, this subject engages me um, spontaneously and effortlessly. Like I want to pay attention to it. For me, um, human nature behavior, like why people do what they do, you know, where emotions come from, um, that all is to me interesting. I think it's probably less interesting to some other people who don't want to become psychologists, right? You know, for other people, they might be like really interested in finance or like interested in history or interested in politics. Um, uh, I have an interest also in food, by the way, like I really love like food and I like read all these like cookbooks and I, I, I sometimes read like restaurant reviews, which is kind of silly because I never go to restaurants and I, I read food essays. So food is another topic, which spontaneously grabs my attention. Um, and I think that we're not able usually to pursue all of our interests when we choose a career path, right? Like I wasn't able to like braid together my interest in human behavior with my interest in food, but I was able to braid together my interest in human behavior with my interest in writing, right? I love words. I love writing. Uh, every time I read a book like you, I'm like, always like, oh, how'd they structure this? Like, oh, I love that first sentence. Like, wow, that's a really beautiful phrase. So, so I will just say that um, in terms of, you know, building grit from the inside out, one of the first things that you can do is say, hmm, can I notice where my attention spontaneously goes? You know, what are the subjects that grab me and energize me? And I think that's a very good place to begin with, you know, where your eventual passions will develop. And the, the second one is practice. Um, again, what, what kind of my high level notes was it's not just about, not just about practice itself, right? I mean, practice is important, but the, the key is d- the deliberate practice that, the deliberate practice affects a person's behavior. And then you also talk about uh, flow, which is more of like an experience that someone has. 
but anyway, so that, those are my, that's my high level notes, but I'm, I'm good I'm job. Curious hear, I, yeah, feel curious like, hear I feel like I'm giving you the final exam on grit. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think you're doing very well. Um, so I, I presented practice next because, um, if, when you look at the childhoods and the, you know, the developmental years of people who eventually we would say, wow, you know, Lindsey Vaughn, you know, Paragon of grit, um, Steph Curry, Paragon of grit. Um, usually you can find this pattern where there's, um, some interest at the beginning, um, which as I said, said is kind of playful um yeah, like independent it wasn't forced on on these people at all you know an interest in basketball an interest in skiing an interest in writing etc then the next stage of development is practice and that's when you are doing the kind of practice especially um the kind of deliberate practice that Anders Ericsson who um who passed away actually um not many months ago um nice. he was a cognitive scientist who spent his whole life studying the development of expertise as a cognitive scientist and what he discovered was that not all practice is the same. So when you're in this stage of your development, what you want to do is to emulate people like Lindsey Vaughn or Steph Curry, and you want to um, practice with intentionality. So these experts set goals for improvement that are very specific and actually um, are not too ambitious. One of the myths of practicing is people think you have to do things that are like really, 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 really hard, but you, you, you don't want to reach too far. You want to get like just beyond what you can do um, at the moment. And then you have to uh, practice whatever you're doing with complete concentration. And then as Anders would um, always tell the people that he was working with, you have to get feedback. If you don't get feedback, you can't improve. You know, if Steph Curry can't see whether the shot went in or didn't, like he can't improve. If Lindsey Vaughn doesn't know how many seconds were like, you know, she, the, her last run down the hill, she can't improve. So I think this second stage uh, of the development of um, of grit is is a kind of seriousness of trying to get better. Like it's discovering the craft of what you do. Um, and I do think it's something that most of us can learn from because not many of us are practicing deliberately um, in a, in a very, um, disciplined kind of, uh, like consistent way, you know, we might do it like, you know, on a Tuesday and then it's like six days go by and then it's like, Oh gosh, I haven't. So I think the secret to deliver practice is not only to understand it, but also to, um, ritualize it so that it's a part of your, your daily routine. Uh, that's, that's so powerful. And then the third one you mentioned is purpose. And, and the, the big one I remember from the book is the story of, the, the bricklayers, right? There's p three people laying bricks. And the first one, someone asks them, what are you, what are you doing? He says, I'm laying bricks. And they ask the second person and he says, I'm building a church. And then you ask the third person and he says, I'm building a house of God. So, uh, so it's kind of like three different levels of, of purpose is, is kind of how, how I took it away. So what, so why did you include purpose as, as number three? Well, the parable of the bricklayers really does have so much to teach us um, about life. And um, this third chapter, if you will, of someone's story as they develop grit that, you know, began with the chapter on interest. And then, you know, then they, they, they begin to practice, uh, you know, seriously. And then this third stage is really something that sometimes is only achieved in middle to late adulthood. Um, I, I think this um, feeling that you're doing something that is meaningful beyond your own self-interest is really at the core here. You know, to say that I'm building the house of God makes it uh, clear to you that you are doing something which is part of, of something much larger than your own life, than your own self. So when you talk to athletes, you know, at some stages, they're like, I really want to win. I want to I win a gold medal. I want to win an Olympic gold medal, right? So that's still a very personal um, interest. 
when someone says like, I'm going to show what's possible, right? Like, you know, I'm going to like, um, uh, like, you know, uh, bring up the next generation. I mean, these are all things where um, that person has uh, expanded their horizon. And I think it unlocks a whole nother level of motivation. You know, when you ask somebody like, you know, how do you get up out of bed and like, you know, try again? And again, I feel like at some point, if it's only because it's interesting to you and it's, or if it's only because like you can, you know, refine your craft and get a little better, I think at some point that runs out, but to feel like you get out of bed in the morning for somebody who's not you, you know, that if you get out of the bed in the morning and you do your best job that somebody else's life or the world will be a better place, um, then, then you really have unlocked, you know, another, level. And I think of passion as being not only interested in what you do, but driven by its, um, its purpose um, in, in that way. So in terms of applying this to your own life, um, I think sometimes, you know, it's almost just reminding ourselves of why, you know, we became a teacher or, you know, why it is that we started writing a book that, you know, feels really hard to finish at the time. It, the purpose isn't something that we never thought about, but it's something that we can easily lose sight of. And so, you know, write it down on a post-it and stick it on your mirror or, you know, ask your, you know, spouse to remind you when you, you know, doubt yourself. But I, I think purpose is something that, um, it is the the north star for for many of the people that I um, study and admire. For me personally, the, the way that I've been able to apply that in my own life is with parenting. Right, I've got four young kids, uh, aged one to ten. So we're in the, <laughs> we're in the we're in the middle of 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 all that fun stuff. And um, that after I read that kind of that that purpose, right, like getting caught in the day to day things sometimes with small children can be exhausting, tiring, frustrating, but, but trying to point to a higher purpose with, with raising my kids. Um, it's, it's, it's helped me a lot. So that's been something I've been able to apply to my own life, um, from your work. And the, the, but anyways, the, the fourth, the fourth one you, you mentioned is, is hope. And my, my takeaway from that was when you talked about, um, that, that hope has to do with having a growth mindset that, you know, a growth mindset and grit together that it's not really something to do with luck but that it's about getting back up again and and that one yeah i'd like to hear you uh, maybe explain that one because that that's one that i think is a key you've you've got to be able to have hope to to be able to persevere right there, there really are two kinds of hope. And I say a little bit about this, but I, I, I want to elaborate on it here. You know, one kind of hope is like, well, I hope things turn out well. Like, I hope it stops raining. You know, I hope the summer is not too hot. Like, I hope the economy does better, right? You know, that's um, a kind of optimism. That's a kind of positivity. I don't think that's the kind that's at the heart of grit. Um, and in particular, the perseverance um, half of grit. I think the hope that drives gritty people is... Um, is I can do something here, right? There's something I can do here. And that's different from like, well, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. I mean, not many of us think that we have power to make it sunny tomorrow. It's gonna be sunny tomorrow or it's not. It'll be a better day if it's sunny, but we don't have a lot of agency, um, if any, really over, well, probably we didn't know agency over the weather. But we can say like, you know, um, as, as one of the paragons of grit that I wrote about in the book, and I'm still in touch with, um, as I am with actually most of them, um, it's Cody Coleman, right? When I met Cody Coleman, he was graduating from MIT and he was graduating with a 4.9 out of five with electrical engineering and computer science degrees. But um, it was such an improbable thing to be hearing from this kid because he was 
he grew up with every demographic risk factor that you can think of. Like he statistically should have been in jail, not graduating from MIT. He's, by the way, on the cusp of graduating from Stanford, I can tell listeners now, um, it, he will be one of the first um, uh, black PhD students in computer science from Stanford in, um, I think, at least more than two decades, wow. right? So, so when Cody signs off his emails, you know, uh, he says, make it a great day. Right. Like that is not like I think it's going to be sunny tomorrow. Like he's asking you to do your part to make it a great day. And that is the kind of agentic optimism, you know, the like, you know what, there's something I can do here um, that really has struck me in my long friendship with Cody um, and and in what powers, um, you know, these people who who do great things. So it is hope. Um, but it's not, you know, oh gosh, I hope the universe turns out okay, hope. It's the it's the hope that comes from, you know, believing that no matter how things are going, there's always something that you have um, agency over, something you can um, improve upon. And whether that's just, you know, smiling at the next person you see instead of frowning or, you know, um, you know, sending a nice text to someone who you think needs encouragement or, you know, um, taking time to like when you are with one of your four children, like, to really be present and to really listen, you know, none of those things cost money and none of those things depend on the weather and none of the things, those things really depend on anything except for yourself. And that's the kind of hope that I think is the most meaningful kind of hope. And it, and it's, it's one of these things that I really encourage people listening. You've, you've got to, you've got to read this book. I'll say I, I, I usually, when I first read a book, I'll do it on audible and I will, I'll mark, uh, you know, things I want to go back to, and, and re-listen to as uh, key points. And I think I average like on a normal book, like I'll do like t- around 25 or so spots that I'll mark. But on your book, I marked like 84. <laughs> because <laughs> because there was, there's just there's just so many like, there's so many good things. Because again, it's 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 your ability to weave in um, the, the, the data, the research, the stories, like it, it was just, it's just so well written. Thank um, you. But I have to ask you since since I have you on 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 some parenting advice as well. Like if for, as as a parent, right? As as a parent that wants to have their kids, you know, I want I want my kids to be to be gritty people. What what advice do you give? I know you talk about it in the book, but what advice do you give parents on how to raise tr- children with grit? So here are some parenting uh, tips for for raising kids who are great. One is like get out of the way, right? So so a lot of parents, um, you know, uh, they are um, you know very quick to like rescue their kids from a problematic situation, right? Like you forgot your history textbook. I'll order one from Amazon. Like, you know, your teacher is kind of like, not so great. Like I'll send a nasty gram to the principal and like, I'll clean that situation right up. And, and I'm not saying that parents shouldn't help their kids, right? Like that's our whole job to help our kids. But when I say get out of the way, it means that like when your kid can solve a problem on their own, or even just like with a little bit of support, it's much better that they solve the problem, um, themselves, right? Like, you know, before you swoop in and solve the problem, like let them struggle a bit, you know, maybe they can Google where to find, you know, like a PDF of what they need, or maybe they can call a friend or, you know, some other solution that's not you solving the problem. You know, people are all of us, children and adults, we're all adaptive, you know, and if you put your arm in a cast, well, your arm doesn't have to lift anything anymore. Guess what happens to that arm? It gets very weak, right? It starts to, and, um, and our children are no different 
different. So if you want your kids to be strong, then you, they have to struggle a bit and you have to get out of the way um, and let them do that. So that's that's one thing that was very hard for me to do. So I will give you a recommendation that is, especially as your kids are you know, going to soon be tweens and teens. So as your kids get older and you, and they're not babies anymore, right? And they're um, they're doing things like sports or other activities. I would say one of the things that really helped me as a mom, because I had a really hard time getting out of the way, is that I signed them up for things where like they had a tough coach or they had a tough teacher who um, who was just much better at get, letting them struggle than I was. Yeah. You know, maybe it wasn't because it's not not their children. So it's like so so I think that outsourcing in a way is a reasonably um, good strategy for, you know, helping your kids. And and I'm not saying you should find coaches or teachers that are unloving, but you know, that kind of tough love. I mean, all of us have a teacher in our life or a coach who was really tough on us, but we knew who loved us. And they, they, they are in large part made us who we are. And I think as a parent, that's partly your job is to find those um, people to fill the, you know, chapters of your own children's lives. That's, that's great. And I, review this with my wife after to, <laughs> yeah. to talk about Tell it. what we, she thinks. We, we could definitely need, need some work on there. So, um, and then the last thing, so there's two questions that I always ask all authors who come on, but before I ask those two questions, I've got one more where at the end of the book, you talk about the relationship between happiness and grit. So, and actually it's, it's great. You put it there because as you read the book and you go through it, you do kind of get a feeling of like, man, as, as I become more gritty in my life, then maybe my life won't be as happy or, or carefree or, or go lucky, you know, things like that. So just curious if you might talk a little bit about that, that relationship between, okay, if I get more, more grit, does that mean I have less happiness in my life? Yeah, is there a trade-off? What, what, yeah. Is there a trade-off? Are you going to be yeah. like a really successful, lonely, miserable person? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I do think it's possible to be really, really hardworking and resilient and like, you know, sort of voluntarily obsessed with what you do, all the things that I mean by perseverance and passion for long-term goals. I think it's possible to do all of that and to say to yourself and others, honestly, I am so happy, so blessed to have this life. And I wouldn't trade my life for anybody else's life, right? I think that happiness and grit are compatible. Um, and I want to even go further than that, which is to say that, you know, you know, just today I was having this really happy moment. You know, I was feeling like so good. And I was thinking to myself, like, why do I feel so good? Is it because like I had a good night's sleep or, you know, because like I had a good breakfast and I was like, you know what? If I asked myself why I felt so good today, it was because um, I recently just finished this essay that I had with Tommy Lasorda, the baseball legend, passed away. And it was an opportunity for me to, um, to write about like, his character and and also to link it to scientific research showing that it's like some of the things that Tommy Lasorda was less famous for, but it was like really like being a loyal person, um, being a kind and generous person, being an honest person, um, being somebody who was really driven um, in his words, you know, to fulfill God's mission for him to be as helpful as he could to anybody that he ever met. It was an opportunity for me to write an essay, um, kind of like a eulogy um, for Tommy Lasorda. And I wrote it for my nonprofit character lab. I send out um, as you know, Stephen, I would email every week to parents and teachers. So I was so um, 
uh, gratified, I guess, that I was able to use my psychology, to use my writing, um, to use my acquaintance with Tommy as a paragon of grit, um, to do something that honored a person who, to me, exemplified Sterling character. And the reason I felt so good and so happy in the most profound way was not because, you know, I had earned a little money that day or not because I had a good night's sleep. It was because I felt like I was doing something that was aligned with my deepest, deepest, deepest values and interests and that I was doing it well. And the reason I wrote about grit and the reason I talk about grit to parents or leaders is not because I want everyone to win a gold medal or because I think status is the most important thing. It's because I think of the moments in my life where I have felt the most good, you know, the most sort of like, wow, things are going great. Like, I like who I am. Um, it's the moments when, you know, everything is lined up, you know, that what I do well, that it's good for others, good, you know, it, it's all there. And I think that when you develop passion and perseverance in these incremental ways, you know, you will have a day where you are crossing the street and you think to yourself, gosh, why do I feel so good? Like, I just feel great. Um, and, and I do think that that's to me, you know, more than anything else, you know, why I study grit. Well, well said. So the, the, the final two questions, the first one is someone who's listening today, what's one practical action step they could take today to develop more grit? I was um, uh, having a conversation with the chair of the board of uh, Character Lab, whose name is Luis Vanon, very gritty guy. He um, uh, created this uh, language app called Duolingo, which a lot of people have heard about. Um, and he's brilliant, and he's a MacArthur-winning computer scientist. Anyway, here's something that he just mentioned kind of casually, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to copy that. So he said that um, he was listening to a podcast, um, and he like learned that, um, uh, I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast, that like, it's good to have a morning routine. So he started developing a morning routine and he was adding to his morning routine. He said, Angela, my morning routine is like more than two hours now. And I was like, Luis, that's a lot of time. Like, how do you feel about that? He's like, it's great. I get so much done. And it's like, because it's a routine, you know, he's not wasting time, like making decisions, right? He's not like, it's just like execution is incredibly efficient. And he's one of the world's most efficient people. So as soon as I heard that the next morning, I was like, I'm going to have a morning routine. <laughs> like I, and so, so I, I now have, you know, more of a morning routine. I, I had one before, but I think it's much more intentional. And I'm like, okay, I really need to do quiet thinking work in the morning. So I did that this morning. And, you know, I need to like, make sure that like, I get a little exercise in. So I got that done. So I would say that one practical thing that you could learn from pretty people like Luis Fanon is that, you know, whether it's like, you know, making sure that you remind yourself of a purpose or whether it's deliberate practice or whatever it is that you're trying to improve, um, make it a routine, build it in. And I think Luis is right, by the way, that the time of day when that is easiest for many of us is the morning, not the afternoon, not the early evening, not, you know, night, but, but, you know, the first thing when you wake up. And then the last question is, and I know that some of this may be a little redundant because we've highlighted a lot, but the last thing I, I like to ask everyone is pre pretend that you were sitting one-on-one -on -one with someone that was just starting off in their career and they asked you about success. So, so both what is success and, and how to be successful? How, how would you approach, approach that answer? 
if I could, um, you know, sit down with my younger self at the beginning of my career, um, here's what I would say. I would say, you know, you want everything to be perfect and you think it's going to be a, a straight line if you get everything right and you do everything that you're supposed to do. But, um, but there are going to be, first of all, times where you're, you're, you're not sure that you're making any progress at all. There are going to be times where you feel like you're going in reverse. Um, and there are times where you feel like you're at a dead end. So these setbacks are part of the journey. And the next time you hit one of those, you can say to yourself, you know what? Now I know I'm on a journey because um, I was sort of forewarned that it was not going to be a straight shot. And so when you have a bad day, you can say to yourself, yep, this is part of the journey. Um, now I know that, you know, I um, um, that I'm making progress in a way because like, you know, I'm hitting bumps of the road. I'm 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 hitting places where I have to turn hard or that like I make a mistake and I got to backtrack. So for me as a young woman, I thought that if I tried my very hardest, it would be linear. Um, and now I know from interviewing so many people who have lived uh, long lives and, you know, achieved great things that it is not a linear path for anyone. Um, and if I had known that then, I think I would have been a little easier on myself um, and appreciated that, you know, the, the journey is much more interesting um, in the way that it eventually and uh, actually plays out than the way it plays out in your head before you get started. Well, I, I love that answer. So thank you so much, Angela, for, for taking time to be with us. Honestly, your your work and um, the way that you present things is just is just awesome. Like, like <laughs> ser seriously, it, 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 it's just thank it's you. just amazing. And I, and I know how, how busy you are and how many requests you have. So it means a lot that you would you would hop on the podcast to, to do this. So, again, appreciate your your time. Thank you so much. I believe in the purpose of what you're doing. And I am so honored to have been with you. Thank you.